0: Welcome back to another episode of the Casual Tuesdays Book Club. This week, I'm discussing Ernest Hemingway's short story, The Old Man at the Bridge, which can be found online. So just Google Ernest Hemingway, The Old Man at the Bridge, and it'll come up. The website is biblioclept.org. That's biblio, as in like books, and clept, as in like stealing things. Okay, let's go. Hemingway is known for having very terse prose, and the beginning to this story is no exception to that. All the sentences are simple and direct, and the narrator even directly states his objectives and purposes. Normally, something like that last thing, you know, stating your objective outright, could seem kind of forced and very contrary to the show-don't-tell mantra of modern writing, but the narrator in question is a soldier, and that sort of frankness actually works well in this context. Anyway... All of these aspects of this simple prose kind of give the reader a very clear sense of setting. There are no secrets. I suppose answering why the old man sits down could be a mystery, but the narrator says that he's just too tired to go on, and that is pretty much true. Although the prose is sparse and simple in its structure, there's a lot of there are subtleties to it. And I don't want the simplicity to, you know, I don't want people to get dismissive because of the simplicity. Because Hemingway is just a master of these little subtle nuances and the, the prose is so carefully constructed so that it's very easy to read and incredibly, incredibly powerful. And in the first paragraph, there are two features, two techniques that kind of stuck out that are examples of how Hemingway can say so much while saying so little. The first thing I noticed was the word staggered, which broadly makes the whole movement and the whole group of people, not just the old man or the people staggering under the weight um, of what they're moving, makes everyone seem kind of beaten and it pervades this general uh, ethos of suffering. This is an example of a broader technique of just being very precise with word choice and how it can create a general atmosphere that applies beyond the immediate context of the word. Um... I lost my spot in that notes again. All right, here it is. Uh, The second thing I liked is less concrete, but it's just about making contrast within the writing and making just meaningful plot. The first paragraph begins with the man seated and it seems peaceful. And then it kind of zooms out to all this chaotic motion before focusing again on the old man who is not moving. He's seated. As readers, we can tell this old man's going to be the focal point because he's the subject of the very first sentence but he also stands out because he's seated and everyone else is in chaotic motion. This technique is, like I said, it's less about being, you know, the word-by-word construction of the piece, but more about the theatrical aspects of, of the plot line and how you can construct your characters. So by introducing this character sitting down in the midst of all this motion, we can tell that he's different. Largely, just kind of broadly speaking, Hemingway is great about creating stories and plots that themselves resonate some important philosophical or emotional point. And this story is an example of that. Now I'd like to focus on a single sentence. And that sentence is, quote, That was his native town, and so it gave him pleasure to mention it, and he smiled. End quote. This is another staple of Hemingway's writing, and it's these brief editorial remarks. Frankly, it's really cool, and he's so incisive about human nature and character that he can get away with it. However, when some writers editorialize in the middle of a narrative, it just doesn't work. So, what makes it work with Hemingway? A couple things. First, the statement has to be right. This seems like a no-brainer. An editorial statement that is wrong is just annoying, but even ones that are ambiguous or debatable aren't great because the reader's going to get hung up on that aspect rather than moving along with the story. So, if you're writing and you include a statement like this one, and in this case, it's, it's justifying the action of a character with a broader editorial statement. And this, st- and if your justification is a little bit shaky, it's better just to delete it and let the reader determine why the person smiled. If Hemingway didn't have that sentence, you could still kind of infer that, and you still get that same sense that the guy is reminiscing and that same kind of melancholy happiness. So you don't need the editorial, is like the editorial remarks, but. Hemingway can do it because he knows exactly what he's saying. Anyway, <clears throat> the second thing that makes this editorial statement work, Hemingway kept it short. We get this just this one little kernel, and then it's back to the narrator. No long tangents. It's pretty ironic for me to say that. Whatever. Okay, the third is more specific, but it can be pl- applied to other scenarios. And I, by specific, I mean it applies to this one. Um, but anyway, Hemingway sticks to what is happening immediately in front of him. And I like that he restates some stuff. He repeats himself. This grounds the statement, and by repeating himself, he's forcing a reader to evaluate the smile again. You get the smile, and then the justification, and then he smiles again. And so you kind of, it's like replaying the same, you know, scene with new understanding. And it's really cool. The next thing I want to talk about is the dialogue. Good dialogue is really hard to write, but Hemingway does an excellent job creating a defeated and weary old man and a soldier who is caring, but not to the point of suicide via waiting around to get killed by fascists, and he conveys both those things through the dialogue that mainly just focuses on animals. Okay, one of the first things I noticed is that the narrator, soldier guy, repeats the question, what animals, and the old man gives two different responses. First, various animals is his actual response, and the second is just a list of the exact specific animals. This works well to establish things about both characters. I'm going to talk first about the old man and his initial response. <laughs> oh, excuse me. <laughs> I just like ran up the stairs. I had to tell my dad something, so I just ran up the stairs and a little out of breath. Ah, okay. First, talking about the old man. His initial response to the question is was vague and kind of dispassionate, and that sticks out and is kind of odd, but- when he responds to the full list and the rest of the conversation, you know, because the, through the rest of the conversation, you as the reader know that he's clearly very passionate about the animals and very upset about losing them. In the light of that, his first response makes it seem, you know, like he's lost in his head or maybe he's even sheltering the soldier. By having both responses, the old man is a much more complex character. Hemingway could have left the first response out and the man could have just you know, been a heartbroken animal lover and said that right off the bat. He could have had the soldier not ask twice and let the old man just kind of offer up, you know, save first save various animals and then just in the silence offer up more information, which is closer to this thing. But still, the fact that the soldier has to tease the information out of him shows this degree of reluctance, which is really interesting. Now I want to talk about the soldier. One of the reasons you ask a question, anyone asks a question twice is because you didn't hear the answer. And so that was my first reading of how, why the soldier asked twice is he asks this question because he's trying to engage with this man, but he doesn't, isn't paying attention to the responses. Um, so he's got, he's trying to appear caring, but he kind of isn't focused on that. And when I say, he's trying to appear caring. I'm not saying that he's a bad guy or anything. I mean, the fact that he stops to try to encourage this old man to keep going is plenty noble. It's just that he has more pressing issues. And so this conversation is superficial because he's just trying to get the man talking and then up and moving. That's really what he wants. And this brings me to the last thing I want to talk about, which is actually the breaks in the dialogue. During this conversation about animals, the soldier is constantly looking toward the opposite bank for signs of this imminent arrival of the enemy. And the first time he does, which is between his repeated questions, Hemingway gives him a lengthier bit to describe the approach of the enemy. But uh, in this, like this, helps set up uh, this, you know, gradually increasing tension. And throughout the conversation though Hemingway includes little asides from the soldier about the approaching enemy and that goes through the whole dialogue to help build this tension but in addition to making suspense it provides this really great juxtaposition for the conversation the old man is worried about his this donkey and the fascists are rapidly approaching and that juxtaposition is really kind of what I saw is like the, the crux of this whole or it demonstrates the crux of the whole story where you've got this apparent you know cognitive dissonance between the thoughts and the reality and that's kind of this it's fascinating and it's really tragic and there's this kind of you know Guernica element to it where it's about you know the innocent lives lost to war um, and the man says that he has no politics Uh, which is kind of a good line. Um, But the fact of the matter is that, like, you know, none of that that matters, none of that translates into real-world effects. And he's, you know, willing... He's basically accepting his own death, and he's just concerned about the animals. And it's this whole bitter, melancholy, just tragic scene. And the juxtaposition between talking about animals and waiting for the enemy to show up is you know, is just really, really wonderful. All right, the next thing is a bit miscellaneous, but Hemingway repeats the fact that the old man is wearing steel-rimmed spectacles. He says it right at the beginning, and then he says it again later on, and this detail stuck out to me, as did the repetition of it, and so I've just been brainstorming the significance of it, mostly looking at what the effect is, or starting by looking at the effect. The general impression I got from the detail was that this vague pedantic aura for the old man and this notion is supported by the fact that the soldier uh, notes that the man doesn't look like a shepherd when he brings up the spectacles for the second time that's kind of a weird circular way the second time the spectacles come up it's because the narrator is talking about how the man doesn't look like a shepherd that's a better way of saying that whatever in this case though the man's you know because of that the The man's care for the animals is purely emotional and not economic, both in the immediate sense and, you know, before the war he got the animals for some emotional quality, not necessarily for an economic one. Okay, the second thing I thought was that the glasses help make the man an individual. This is true for the reader. But it also fits with the situation. You can imagine some higher-ranking soldier telling the narrator, hey, go talk to that old man. And he's like, oh, which old man? And the officer's like, oh, the one with the steel-rimmed spectacles. So, and the guy's like, ah, I know which one you're talking about. And so, it's an identifying trait for the narrator, but it's also an identifying trait for the reader. And interestingly, that sort of, that identifying trait can make the the old man an individual without giving him a name, which forces an identity onto him. Um, you know, an identity that kind of goes beyond the text of the story. My last thought about this detail was that it sticks out, it's one of those weird things that sticks out in the same way that we all remember like odd details from tragic events. For example, I can remember what I had for breakfast on 9-11, even though I was in like third or fourth grade. I know at the time I didn't fully appreciate what was going on, But I knew it was something big just because of the way my parents were acting. And the fact, like the TV, like we had the radio on, the TV was on, which never happened in the house. Uh, And uh, yeah, so my memory of 9-11 is tied to like Quaker oatmeal, maple brown sugar. And it's, it's, those things are like joined and it's super, it's very strange. So Maybe the spectacles function in the same way as having this little random thing that kind of sticks out, which can be very humanizing because it's just such a casual detail that, you know, it wouldn't stick out in regular life, but in the context of war and conflict, it really, it's kind of jarring. Whatever it is, whatever the significant is, the significance is, I think the fact that the description is repeated and it's a relatively long descriptor means it deserves our attention. So if any of you listeners have thoughts on the issue, I'd love to hear them. That's this week's text me thing. I'm going to do it every week now. I like it. And that way people get more involved. So if you have any thoughts about the steel rimmed spectacles, go ahead and send me a text. I'd love to hear them. Okay, last things last, the ending. It's another of Hemingway's editorial remarks Where the narrator really isn't saying it so much as Hemingway, the author, is speaking through him um, in a much more direct way. It has that same sense, same like what I was talking about earlier, that same sense of just tragic juxtaposition, even to the point of being almost funny. And I think that's true of a lot of Hemingway, where it could be funny if he hadn't made it just so fucking soul-crushingly sad. Anyway, I don't really have a lot to say about the ending because it's pretty straightforward and I think that's true of a lot of Hemingway's writing. It's simple and blunt and utterly, utterly brutal. It's easy to read and incredibly moving, in part because it's so easy to read and so universal. And this makes, his work just speaks for itself. You know, there's a reason he won the Nobel Prize and that he's probably the American writer and, you know, and will be for generations to come and is a world, you know, world-renowned writer. Anyway, next time you're reading some Hemingway, take time to appreciate how carefully constructed that simple prose is, and just how brutal and honest and sad those storylines are. All right, that's it for this week. Thank you for tuning in. Next week, I'll be talking about Virginia Woolf's short story, The Mark on the Wall. It can be found online at AmericanLiterature.com. Again, that's The Mark on the Wall by Virginia Woolf on AmericanLiterature.com. Next week, this same podcast. Anyway, this week, the opening and closing song was War Zone by Dale Earnhardt Jr., Jr., who now go by the name of Junior, Jr. I picked this song because I wanted another take on the Guernica story. Guernica is the famous... Pablo Picasso painting about the death of innocent people in war, specifically the Spanish Civil War, the same war that Hemingway is writing about in this story. Anyway, the lyrics to Warzone are about someone who suddenly wakes up and finds themselves in the midst of a war, uh, but the music has this dreamy, dancey, fun quality that offers a really interesting juxtaposition. Thanks again for tuning in. Here's a little bit more from Dale
1: Earnhardt Jr., Jr.